The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Tained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Let's pray. Father, you tell us there in Ephesians 1, as you do in many different places in your word, that you are the one who sovereignly reigns, working all things according to what you have wisely advised yourself you should do. For the purposes that you have in mind along the paths that you know best, you are the God who reigns. We thank you for that reality because you are also the God who is good. You're the God who reigns and the God who is good. You are the God who is almighty and the God who is all-loving. You are ours in Christ. Thank you. As we come now to your word here this morning and approach it in a slightly different manner than usual, will you help us to, to follow, to understand, and to hear? To not just understand the content, but to, to hear what you're saying in the content to follow your purposes and understand something of how it is and why it is that you work out all things as you do. So teach us, Lord, inform us this morning, but also stir in us hope, a faith that is hope-filled, and move us to action. So take this word this morning, Lord, from the book of Esther and open our minds to it. Teach us, build up your church for our good and for your honor. Thank you, Lord. Amen. The book of Esther is probably the most unusual book in the entire Bible. It's a secular story. It's about the goings-on in the royal court of a Gentile kingdom, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. It is not in Israel. It is not in Judah. It is not in Jerusalem. It's not about Israelite or Jewish kings. And it never mentions God, not once. Nor does it mention much of anything else related to Old Testament worship. There's, there's brief mention of sackcloth, and there's two different mentions briefly of fasting, and that's it. It's a very unusual book, especially for the Hebrew Old Testament. But we'll be considering this book this morning, all ten chapters of it. How often do we consider an entire book in 45 minutes? <laughs> And we're not going to this morning, it's probably going to take us a few minutes longer than 45 minutes, but we're going to consider the entire book this morning because of how the lessons that are in it form a conclusion to the topics that we've been covering over the last number of months in 1 Peter, Jude, and 2 Peter. So those New Testament letters, we're looking at them all in, in that sequence, they have given us a lot to think about, living as aliens and strangers here in this world, exiles in a foreign land. A lot to think about. We, we, we face a, a people all around us that disagrees with what we're about. And at times, that disagreement looks like violent opposition, persecution. And at other times, it looks like passive 
indifference. Even, even just avoiding, ostracism and, and a setting aside of us, a, a kicking us out of the center of society. And then at other times it looks like constantly facing and dealing with false teaching inside the church or coming at us from outside the church and, the, and great temptation that that offers to us, pulling us away. And all the while all of that is going on, there's a wondering in us that is kind of curious, when, if this will ever end? how it will end. And as it does not end, maybe a wondering of, is God even there at all? Is he real? Is he present? Does he see? All those issues come at us in, in 1 Peter and in Jude and 2 Peter, and all those issues are present in the book of Esther in a very, very different sort of story. And so we're going to approach this this morning in a very different sort of way. And I'm looking at this again as a kind of a conclusion to the series of how do we live here in this world, 1 Peter, Jude, 2 Peter. There's some points here that as, as God teaches them in the book of Esther will be applicable to us, help us to live here as faithful exiles waiting well. So I'm not going to read the entire book this morning. We usually, if, if you're new here, we usually read the passage that we're going to be preaching on because we think it is important that we hear God's word, but it's, it's too long. So I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read selective sections, and I will summarize then other sections, and all through it I'm going to make some, some comments so that I can be sure that we're all kind of following what's happening in the book. And then at the end, probably in the last third of our time together, I'll make a couple of arching, overarching observations from the book, and those are also for the whole series, if you will. So let's begin. I'll read a few verses from Esther chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. Pause there. King Ahasuerus is the king better known to us in the history as Xerxes. He came to the throne of the Medo-Persian Empire in the mid-480s B.C., so this is about 100 years after the final fall of the city of Jerusalem and the final exiling of the final captives. They were, they were carried away to Babylon, and then Babylon was conquered by the Medo-Persians, and so this is actually a couple of civilizations down, downstream from the fall of Jerusalem. And in the third year of his reign, Xerxes held a great gathering in part to plan for his upcoming invasion of Greece. This is all history. And it was a big old festival that happened for a long time, and he gathered a bunch of people to him, months-long festival, and it concluded with a week-long feast for his top officials that featured lots of drinking, we are told in chapter 1. And near the end of that, the drunken king summoned Queen Vashti to come and show off her beauty to him and all the other drunken men assembled there. Now, Vashti may not have been the only wife and queen 
of Xerxes, maybe like his father, he had several. It's possible. But we are told in verse 11 of chapter 1 that Vashti was lovely to look at, Vashti was summoned, and Vashti refused to come. One can imagine why. But that wasn't going to stand. The king and all of his advisors decided that they couldn't let that be, and so as a result of her refusal, she was going to be sidelined, set aside, and somebody else would be given her place. Well, Xerxes heads off to war. And eventually he returns, and the beginning of chapter 2 tells us that he picks up this topic again and under counsel decides to form a new harem from which he'll find Vashti's replacement. So officials are dispatched throughout the empire to gather in beautiful young girls, a whole host of them. So we begin chapter 2 now, verse 5. As that's going on, the officials are gathering in all these young girls Verse 5, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. We find here in this section the first clue as to why any of this should concern us. There's a Jew named Mordecai, a descendant of a man named Kish, who was a Benjaminite, and Kish had been carried away in that exile long ago. Mordecai has been in charge for some time, in charge over his orphaned cousin, Esther. She was beautiful and lovely to look at, and so by the king's edict, she along with so many others, was forcibly taken in to enter into a year-long preparation for a one-night tryout with the king. She was very winsome, perhaps by beauty, perhaps by interpersonal skills, perhaps by both. But she won the favor of the eunuch who was in charge of the harem, and he helped her then to win the favor of the king when he met her, and Xerxes picked Esther to replace Vashti, and no one knew that she was Jewish. Some time passes. We don't know exactly how long, but Mordecai has become a regular fixture by the king's gate. Maybe he's trying to keep tabs on his daughter, so to speak, what's going on with her. But while he's there, end of chapter 2 tells us that Mordecai overheard two disgruntled guards plotting to assassinate King Xerxes. And he tells Esther, and Esther tells the king, and the end result was these two plotters were hanged on the gallows 
And everything was recorded in the chronicles of the king, the court records, all written down what happened. When you hear hanged on the gallows, don't think in our modern Western world of like a big wooden platform and a rope and a noose. Maybe you have a footnote explaining this, but back in that time, in that place, in that culture, hanged on the gallows, what that was was impaled on a stake. A wooden stake stuck in the ground and the victim's body on the stake, hung there. Bigger the stake, bigger the statement. For everybody to see, shaming, humiliating, gruesome, a spectacle. They hung them on the gallows. They impaled them on a stake for everyone to see. And it was written down in the court records. Now, all of that really is introduction. The story begins in earnest now in chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Verse 8, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people and they do not keep the king's law so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business they may put it into the king's treasury. And so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as seems good to you. Verse 13 then. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy to kill and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Pause there. Haman, the new second in command of the king, is an Agagite, we are told. Repeatedly, in fact, the book tells us that five times, in case we can't remember it, Haman is a descendant of Agag, the Amalekite king that we read about in 1 Samuel. Mordecai will not bow to him, therefore. That's why. He will not bow to him because of who he is. And so Haman, upon learning that Mordecai is a Jew, 
also has a problem with him and all of his people. He plans to kill all the Jews, all the people of God in the entire empire, young and old, men, women, and children, all on a single specific great day of destruction. That's decided, that's publicly decreed. Mordecai hears about it and tells Esther, says, go tell the king, tell the king that you are Jewish also and plead for mercy. But she says, I can't do that. She can't go unless she's invited. As the details are sketched out, she hasn't been invited in a while. It would risk life for her to go. But Mordecai replies with probably the most well-known line in this book, chapter 4, verse 14. This is the one that, if anybody has it written on a plaque or a poster somewhere, this is the line from the book that's, that's known. If you keep silent, Esther... At this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther hears that and agrees to go after three days of fasting by her and by others. In chapter 5, she goes. The king receives her and listens as she invites him and Haman to a feast. They have a good time. Then she invites them to another day of feasting tomorrow, double the fun, and Haman is feeling good about himself. This is like being invited to go to the private quarters of the White House, just you, to have dinner with the president and his wife only. Just the three of you, twice in a row. He's feeling pretty good, pretty powerful, pretty important, pretty exalted. There's only one problem. On the way home from that first day of feast, he passes by Mordecai again, and Mordecai again will not stand and bow, will not bow and honor him. So freshly irritated, Haman is so angry that he can't even wait until the already appointed day of execution. He has to kill that Mordecai guy right now. He is so angry. He knows just the way to do it. Haman sets up a great big stake at his own house on which he will impale Mordecai. Now, in chapter 6, in the course of 12 hours, three things just happen to happen in just the right order, right between these two days of feasting. Chapter 6, verse 1, the king can't sleep. So, can't sleep. Sometime in the wee hours of the morning, he has the book of the Chronicles brought out and read to him. Maybe he's catching up on some work. Maybe he thinks they're boring enough to put him to sleep, but whatever. He reads them, and second coincidence, they just happen to come upon the account of how Mordecai, through Esther, saved the king's life from those assassins. And realizing that nothing had been done to honor Mordecai, the king vows to do so immediately, and it just so happens. What a coincidence that Haman is popped by the palace bright and early to get the king to sign off on Mordecai's execution. So he's there. Haman hates and wants to kill Mordecai. The king loves and wants to honor Mordecai. The king speaks first. He asks Haman, what should be done to honor a man that the king wants to honor? And Haman, of course, thinking he's talking about himself, lays out this plan of exaltation, and the king then says, go and do that for Mordecai, and Haman's crushed, humiliated. But he walks him through the street, and 
celebrates him in public. Now verse 12, chapter 6, verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated, if we'd been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who? Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Queen Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And as the king arose in his wrath, wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. And then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. As his own wife and friends predicted, things fall apart for Haman very quickly. As Esther reveals the truth to the king and makes a request for mercy. And the depth of Haman's evil, the depth of his treachery is revealed by the, by the very subtle verse 9 proclamation. By the way, Haman was plotting to kill the one who saved your life, O king. The king loves and wants to honor him well, Haman hates and wants to kill Mordecai. Haman hates Mordecai, the king's savior, wants to hang him on a tree, a great big stake hung up there for all to see. And that's ultimately what gets Haman himself hung up. And only then, after Haman is destroyed, only then is the wrath of the king abated. Now, from there on, the rest of the story details the reversal, the unwinding of this day of destruction. Another decree is made on Queen Esther's initiative, but the text says, actually, Esther had the idea, but the text says that it was all done according to all that Mordecai commanded because the king made Mordecai his second in command. 
according to Mordecai's command and sealed with the king's ring, an elaborate counterplan is made that allows the Jews to arm themselves and to fight against all who would come against them. And on the appointed day, there is widespread bloodshed all across the empire. 75,000 people are killed. Not everybody in the empire, only those who come against and try to kill God's people. The opponents of God's people are themselves destroyed, including Haman's 10 sons. But as it all happens, chapter 9, three times, verse 10, 15, and 16, says the Jews laid no hand on the plunder. An allusion to an Old Testament passage. This reverse destruction is what became the Jewish feast of Purim. A celebration, chapter 9, verse 22 says, of the days which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, a great celebration of God's deliverance. The people of God, threatened with destruction, live at peace, safe, and all their enemies are gone. And Mordecai the Jew sits enthroned at the right hand of the king. That's the story of Esther, in a nutshell. It's long, there's a lot more detail there. And if you listen to other people preach this book, they, they, they do it in different ways and emphasize different things. I, I would say that a number of times that I've encountered people talking about Esther, they take it in some ways that I don't think it's meant to be taken. But people certainly flesh out a lot more of the details of the book. I think we can find the point why it's here in two main observations. Here's the first. And again, these are from the book and they are for us over this whole series of these several New Testament books. Here's the first lesson from this book, providence. God still rules all the world even if you can't see him. Providence. God still rules all the world even if you can't see him. The book of Esther is not about Esther. Not really. Any more than the book of Joshua is about Joshua or Samuel is about Samuel. It, Esther is a main character. She, she has a big part to play, sure. So does Mordecai for that matter. But the book of Esther is not a book given to us for Esther's sake. It's, it's not meant to lift up Esther as a role model for us. And that's really important to get right, right off because a lot of people, perhaps because of the unusualness of this book, tend to do something with it that kind of turns it into a book that is a story about a courageous heroine that tells us how we should be too. We, we, we should approach life like Esther does. For such a time as this, I have come to this spot and this place, and so I should, I should live courageously, and I should speak up for justice, and I should save my people. That's not the point. It's not completely off. We'll come back to that. But it's not here to give us a role model to follow, Esther it's written to lift up God as a sovereign ruler to be trusted. And it does so by on purpose, 
telling us all this long story in a way that deeply resembles most of life for most of us. Life goes on and things happen and God is apparently nowhere to be found. Most things happen in this story, like in our lives, that have perfectly understandable human reasons behind them that are sufficient to cause the things that happen. You don't have to resort to God to explain that. It's perfectly natural. Or at best, it's maybe a coincidence. It seems unlikely, but yeah, it could have happened, but we have the word coincidence in English because that stuff happens. Things that, that seem unlikely but are possible, but unlikely, they, they happen at the same time. It shows, sure. You look at this story like you look at our stories and almost everything that happens has a perfectly understandable human reason behind it or is at best a coincidence. Our lives, like this story, are very ordinary and completely non-supernatural. Which is exactly how the doctrine of divine providence works. A main theme in this book of Esther, it often appears throughout the entire Bible, shown and explained, think of Ephesians 1, 11, I read at the beginning, God works all things according to the purposes that God advises himself. God works all things, but of course we are working. Romans 8, 28, God works all things for our good, but of course we're acting. God's at work behind all things. All the things that we are working it's the doctrine of providence. It's, it's all through the Bible, but it is front and center here in this book. So here's the definition of providence. I'll say this slowly and repeat it a few times. Providence. God working out his divine purposes by means of the ordinary functioning of secondary agents. Providence. God working out his divine purposes. God's doing something. God's working out the purposes that God has. How? By means of the ordinary functioning of secondary agents. Secondary agents, everything that's not God. Weather patterns, laws of physics, plants, animals, people, Secondary agents, ordinary functioning. That's how God is working out all of his divine purposes. God made the world to work in an ordinary, functioning, reasonable way, and as it all functions according to how it is and what it is, God's working through it all, not despite it all, not working around it all. It, it is not like a, a very clever parent who sees a kid in the middle of the floor making a gigantic mess and can like navigate around that to, despite all of that, still get accomplished what I'm trying to get done today. Not that. Not even though there is, even through, keep the R, even through the mess, even through all of the ordinary functionings, people and the choices that they make as they process events in life, weather and weather patterns and the rain cycle and the way the sun shines and the way shadows fall and what you choose for lunch today and the clothes you wear tomorrow, all of it, all of it, not despite it, through it, because of it, in it, by means of it, God working out his divine purposes. 
all is under his sovereign hand, happening for his sovereign plan. Miracles, a miracle is something completely different. A miracle is something that is not according to ordinary functioning, but it, it suspends that, it changes it. So water falling down is normal, water falling up is abnormal. That would be a miracle. Miracles are not things that are really, really rare. Miracles are things that are impossible. Miracles themselves then are very, very, very rare. Providence is the ordinary working of God in the world. It's how he rules how he is at work all the time in all of our lives. God working out his divine purposes by means of the ordinary functioning of secondary agents. God is providentially at work all through this book, completely hidden, except to the godly reader who understands the doctrine of providence and then has eyes to see it. All through all of these things, even the sinful and the very surprising things, God uses the sin of the initial party and the unjust dismissal of Vashti. God's working through the abuses of a harem. God's surprisingly using lowly, powerless people, a teenager, an orphaned foreign girl, and an otherwise unknown guy named Mordecai. Eunuchs, castrated slaves, God uses them. The doctrine of divine providence is quietly all over this book. It's behind every single little thing that happens and behind all the big things that happens. It's a mighty sovereign work that shows up sometimes in the little and sometimes in the, it just so happened that Mordecai was just happened to be at the gate and that Haman just happened to pass by him after day one of the feast. And it just so happened that he decided to kill him immediately. And he set up a stake at his own house. And it just so happened that the king couldn't sleep that night. And it just so happened that the bookmark in the Chronicles was right before the record of the assassination attempt. And it just so happened that they'd forgotten to thank him back then. And it just so happened that Haman came in early and that Haman is the one who's given the, the assignment to lead the procession in a shamed, foreshadowing way. And it just so happened that he fell on Esther's couch just as the king came back in, the final straw, saw him attacking the queen in his own presence. All of that could have gone a thousand different ways, but it didn't. And as we say that, as we talk about that, don't forget, I'm including the wickedness in this story also. There's wickedness in this story. Young teenage girls gathered together by the truckload to form a harem. Now, they live in a society where they probably would not have had much say in their marriage anyway but they probably had a marriage coming and family coming and now not anymore, they're in the king's harem. One night tryouts, a cycle of them. That's evil. Even through sin, God's carrying out his purposes. Not despite, even through it. 
Romans 8, 28 tells us, reminds us, remember that God works out all these things, even the evil things done to other people, evil things done by other people to us, through all things, God is at work to carry out his purposes and his plans. He reigns and he's accomplishing what he's after. More about that in the next point. But this is the doctrine of providence seen in this book and it's not given to us here only as a doctrinal teaching point so that you can kind of know it and understand something about it. It's given to us as a motivating truth also. It's meant to give us hope, to help us live in faith when we're living in a place like the context of this book, when we're living in a place where we are under the thumb of a foreign power and God does not seem to be present. Actually, look again, he's all over this. He's right in the middle of it. The motivating truth to us, we are to remember that he is here, that he is at work. Take heart from that. This is a huge need of ours. As we, we live in a world in which it is easy to feel vulnerable, easy to feel alone, and easy to wonder, what's God up to? Is God up to? And his book says, remember the doctrine of providence, God is at work. Even through the stuff that frightens you, even through the stuff that pains you. All of it is at work to accomplish God's good purpose. Take heart from the doctrine of providence and then take action. And this is what gets us back to Esther and Mordecai for that matter. They are models because of the providential presence of God. It not only gives us hope, gives us faith, but faith should be worked out. Believing God's here, God's at work. Mordecai's question to Esther is, is in fact, it's, it's a good, important verse. It's meant to be a question to us. God's at work. Salvation for God's people is going to arise somehow or another. But you should think, maybe I'm here because it's about using me. Maybe that's why I'm here. Wherever it is that you are, you are there by the providential working of God. You are exactly where you are, having exactly happened to you, and it's exactly happening to you by the providential work of God. And you should be thinking, you should be on the, kind of like on the front foot thinking, for a purpose. I don't know what that is. It, the purpose might not show up till tomorrow or next week or next month, but, but God's in this. I'm not here by accident. There's no randomness in the world. Maybe I'm here to take this action, a righteous action. That's what God's law comes into play. That's where God's law comes in. He, he like tells us, and what I would regard as righteous is this. He, he tells us. He doesn't let us do anything we please. It's no excuse for sin. But it's possible that you are where you are because there's an action, there's an activity, there's a, there's a step you are meant to take. God does not work despite us, without us. Does God work without us? Yeah, miracles. Does God 
overrule us? For sure, yeah. I understand the context I'm saying is that what providence teaches us is that God accomplishes his purposes through people, especially through his people. Maybe you are where you are because you're supposed to do something. That should move us to action with confidence because God's at work and we can't mess up his plan. But we do have a faith to live out as God works in and through us to will and to work according to his purposes. Providence. That's the first, that's, that's the, the biggest, most important observation from this book. But there's a second one because you've got to ask providence towards what end? That's the second point. God remains committed to save his people, exalt his ruler, and destroy his adversary. God remains committed to save his people, exalt his ruler, and destroy his adversary. Divine providence is how God rules the world day in, day out, but it's got a reason. What's he after? It's right here in this book. And sometimes we miss this point in the book because we kind of look at Esther and we try to figure out what's going on here and we kind of assume that God shows up in this book. It's, It's an isolated story in that God shows up in this book because something happens. Haman comes to power, and because he has a a little pet peeve of his, he decides to destroy all the Jewish people, and God says, oh, I'm going to step in and stop that. And he steps in, he stops that. That's the conclusion, the end. This book tells us in several ways that there's something else going on. This is not an isolated story, but it actually is one chapter in the much larger story that begins way, way back long ago. And that shouldn't surprise us, actually, because all of the Bible is actually one great big story, and we're supposed to read all of the stories in the Bible in light of the big story. So this should be kind of expected, that Esther's part of something else. This book of Esther is a story about God's people living as aliens and strangers in a foreign land. They're not home. And some people, maybe you've heard this or maybe you've read this, some people try to, try to make something of that. The book never condemns them. They, they had not gone back to Jerusalem. Ezra and Nehemiah already had. They did not. But the book never condemns them for that. I think we're reading something into it that's not there. They're just presented as, here they live. Aliens and strangers in the land. Not home, under the power of a people who do not know or follow the Lord. And right off, that sounds like our story. That sounds like all of the story. Between Eden and the new Eden, we live here in the world, not at home. And then we're told that Mordecai is a Benjaminite, son of Kish. Which if you know all the Bible should make you think of Israel's first king Saul, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. 
who lost his kingdom when he didn't kill the Amalekite king Agag in 1 Samuel 15, but instead let him live and let all the Israelites lay their hands on the plunder. Mordecai reminds us of something, Saul, but better. And this is meant to remind us of that conflict between Saul and Agag. Because Haman, we are told repeatedly, is a descendant of Agag. He's a descendant of that king, which means he's an Amalekite also. And that ancient people, the Amalekites, who hated and attacked the Israelites during the Exodus, remember that? So you put together all those hints of their lineages and the, the point about Israelites not touching the plunder this time. You put together all those hints and you realize this face-off between Mordecai and Haman is like the face-off between Saul and Agag, which is because of the face-off between the people of God and the Amalekites when they were coming out of Egypt. Journeying from the land of their bondage through the wilderness, wandering on their way home. The Amalekites sought to stop and destroy God's Israel, and they earned God's everlasting condemnation because of it. Esther's part of a big, big story. Or to put it all another way, God does not arrive in this story because Haman has somehow risen to dangerous power. God providentially raised Haman to dangerous power. All things. Why is Haman the number two? Because God put him there. Why did God put him there? Because God is committed to doing something. Listen, God is committed to delivering his people who live in exile to great joy and peace and safety while exalting an otherwise unknown ordinary servant to the right hand of the throne while also executing full and final judgment on all who hate him and his people, especially first and foremost, the wicked, raging mastermind. That's Esther. Does that sound like another story you know? An unknown Galilean is despised and rejected by the powers that be. His tree, his place of piercing, his shaming, his cross meant to destroy him, that becomes the place that his great adversary and our great adversary is actually destroyed. The great adversary is hung up to be cast down and with that great evil Haman's destruction comes the destruction of all of his followers, those who hate God's people and seek our destruction too. God is determined to execute full and final judgment and in the same moment to deliver his people to great joy and peace. Jew and Gentile alike, the faithful sons of Abraham. The mourning of the people of God that we encounter as we live right now as exiles here, like the mourning that they encountered as they saw the rage coming against them, that all is turned to a celebration, a feasting, a great joy, a peace.
That happens here. It happens from time to time now, but this is all a foreshadowing of what is going to be accomplished one great day by the sovereign God when he comes. Even now, he is bringing that day little by little by little as he providentially works all things according to his purposes. That day is coming. But it doesn't look like it right now. Any more than it looked like it after day one of Esther's feast. But God worked it out and is still working out according to his timing by his means. And so we read Esther and we see in it, this is the story that God is providentially carrying out. And what we should take from that is hope and a call to action and a solid reminder that he calls us to the places in which he intends to work and has given us all things that we need for life and godliness. Second Peter. He's given us what we need to do what he's called us to in the places where he's placed us. He hasn't left us. He's not gone. In fact, he's coming. That's Esther. That's the story. That's our hope. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this interesting book and for the story behind it. You help us to see in it your hand and to see in all of our lives your purposes being accomplished. And when we can't see it, give us eyes of faith. We continue to build us, your people, and use us here as exiles in the place where you've put us. Call us to the right actions for each of us in the different places where we are. Give us your spirit and empower us. Lord, help us to live in hope, trusting you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.